way, when I, I started to read Coming Back to Life a few weeks ago, I was really uh, uh, given pause by the, the idea that everybody is involved in every phenomenon. And I realized uh, came about because here we've had this intense porting, so to speak, rhetoric anyway, on, uh, on at least two major channels, three major channels. And uh, I heard the, the CEO of a major network uh, in a discussion where the interviewer said to him, you know, uh, in some ways the Republican frontrunner has really benefited from all this free advertising day and night. It's really gotten everybody's attention. It really, it's like celebrity television. And uh, don't you think that you're responsible for some of this and that you could cut back on this and not put all of this into out all the time? And he, and uh, uh, not naming the network, and he said, no, especially that your network doesn't lean in that particular direction. He said, no, not at all, because our, our income has never been higher. And that was, the, you know, we can't if, if people are watching. And I thought, wow. And I am watching, not, not any more than I check in here and there, but I am also a person who watched, maybe everybody, who understood that everybody is fueling the fire including those of us who watch and check, and I just have to know what's going on. So th there's a way in which it's not them who are doing it and fueling the fire, because I am also doing it and fueling the fire. And it's, it's easier for me, because then I don't have to make people my enemy. I just have to think everybody's got to get a grip and stop fueling the fire and do something else. So the Dharma talk, of all Dharma talks, it's on. Good, thank you. The Dharma talk that you always hear with a different name every week is how is it possible for human beings with startleable nervous systems to cultivate uh, the kind of mind and body and response system that says, whoa, look at this is what's happening. Let's see what happens next. Let's figure it out. Let's not leap to make some peremptory response. They're all that. Last week we talked about the Eightfold Path as always to organize that kind of a mind. And we'll talk about it again when we're talking after we sit. The meditation instruction uh, that really impressed me this last year by a teacher named Vimala Ramsey uh, has one particular meditation instruction and his instruction is relax. That's it. Relax. Uh, he said, you know, many of you have been trained in sit quietly, sit straight, feel yourself sitting, feel your breath, feel your heart beating, feel the parts of your body, listen to the sounds of the room, and then bring your attention to your breath and stay with the breath and come back to the breath and stay with the breath and come back to the breath. <coughs> And his particular point of view, and I'm certainly going to say that I think that that particular technique of stay with the breath and come back to the breath and stay with the breath and come back to the breath, very powerful technique. People have done it since the time of the Buddha. It's a central technique in refining uh, the steadiness of the mind, cultivating steadiness of mind and cultivating clarity of insight. And it has limits. 
And what he's pointing out is it works for some people that studying the attention on one particular thing like the breath relaxes their mind and uh, uh, makes their um, uh, attention, awareness more keen. He said for other people, it makes them tense because they can't stay with the breath and the breath doesn't work with them so well. And they say, oh, I missed it again. I was breathing, but now, oh, I lost it. Oh, now I have to try harder. Okay, now I'm with the breath, I'm with the breath. Oh, I have to remember those people are coming over. Oh, I lost my breath. Because we do have thoughts. I have to remember this. I I wonder what that sound is outside. Those are awfully good-looking turkeys this morning. I wonder if I have enough gas in my car to get home. Every kind of thought goes through, and every kind of feeling goes through the body. And what Vimla Ramsey was saying is that uh, said the, that uh, the breath is a very useful start. It's a very useful place to find yourself if all of a sudden your mind is muddled and uh, confused or you've become tense. He said, but once you're not tense, he said, just leave it alone. He said, what we're practicing is having a not tense mind. That's all. We're practicing having a not tense mind. Uh, Jane got me a copy of Relax. If you want, I have a copy of Relax to read whenever you want me to read it. Well, let me just see. Maybe it'll be the right time right now, Susan. Susan's been wanting to read this poem since last week. This might be just the right time. Now, let me just see. It's all the terrible things happening in the world and then the story about the strawberry at the end. Okay, how about if I read it at the end of When We Sit, because people will like this so much. (laughs) Well, people will like it so much. Why don't you read it right now? People will like it so much. There you go. Do you want to have a microphone? Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, good. This will be on the table. No, this is a poem by Ellen Bass. I don't know if you people know her, but I think she's a fabulous, fabulous poet. She's in Santa Cruz. Bad things are going to happen. Your tomatoes will grow a fungus, and your cat will, run, will get run over. Someone will leave the bag with the ice cream melting in the car and throw your blue cashmere sweater in the dryer. Your husband will sleep with a girl your daughter's age, her breast spilling out of her blouse, or your wife will remember she's a lesbian and leave you for the woman next door. The other cat, the one you never really liked, will contract a disease that requires you to pry open its feverish mouth every four hours. Your parents will die. No matter how many vitamins you take, no no matter how much Pilates, you'll lose your keys, your hair, and your memory. If your daughter doesn't plug her heart into every live socket she passes, you'll come home to find your son has emptied the refrigerator, dragged to the curb, and called the used appliance store for a pickup for drug money. There's a Buddhist story of a woman chased by a tiger. When she comes to a cliff, she sees a sturdy vine and climbs halfway down. But there's there's also a tiger below. And two mice, one white, one black, scurry out and begin to gnarl at the vine. At this point, she notices a wild strawberry growing from a crevice. She looks up 
down at the mice. Then she eats the strawberry. So here's the view, the breeze, the pulse in your throat. Your wallet will be stolen. You'll get fat, slip on the bathroom tiles in a foreign hotel and crack your hip. You'll be lonely. Oh, taste how sweet and tart the red juice is. How the tiny seeds crunch between your teeth. Relax. Well, I'm glad you remembered to get that, Susan. And um, I hadn't, I'd, I'd read it once a long time ago, but I hadn't remembered. I'm thinking about the fact that all of those things, variations on the theme of which happen to all of us, not all of those things happen to all of us, but variations on the theme. And they're even the small things, not we turn on the television and we see what's going on here, or we turn on the television and we see what's going on there, or people do get terrible diseases and people are in terrible accidents. And, and all of those things happen. And just because they do, because it's life. And the best, I think, I'll, I'll read to you when we're finished. Now I want us to sit. I really want to say that for me, what my meditation is at this stage of my life is I sit every day, like we will now, like I did when I got up this morning. I sit for a certain amount of time, and I don't do anything. I just sit. I, I usually I drink my coffee if I'm drinking coffee that morning. But my goal in sitting is to remind my mind that it has a way of being where it's not solving problems and it's not doing things and it's not figuring things out. It's relaxing. It's following the teaching by my friend Ajahn Amaro who says, let the mind and body assume its natural peace and ease and then stay that way. Just stay that way. I think it is so inspiring to hear let the mind and body assume its natural peace and ease. It has a natural peace and ease. You don't have to do anything. It's under there. It's under all the cats and neighbors and things and daughters and sons. And there's a natural peace of the mind. <coughs> and there's, some, there's a way in which when I hear Ajahn Amaro say to me, let your mind assume its natural peace and ease, which I usually say to myself and I can hear him say it. But I say it to you. It just does. Not necessarily for a long time, but all of a sudden it's just right here without commentary. And there's what's going on right here happening. There's the sound of the air conditioning and the sound of people and the sense of sitting and the sense of being breathed sometimes I think to myself I just really the only thing I really need to do is not to fall asleep pay attention to the sense of beingness and then Ajahn Amaro will say his second sentence, 
which is only pay attention to whatever arises to disturb the peace. So if I'm sitting and I suddenly think, I wonder if I left my lights on in the car, you feel a tension in your body, then you think, well, I'll know soon enough. Now relax. I wonder what I should cook for dinner tomorrow. When I get there, I'll figure it out. That the whole, oh, my back is a little tense now. Relax. Vimala Ramsey says, but anything arises in your mind and captivates it more than just a passing thought. Just relax. The only instruction you need is relax. Put it down. Anytime you feel like, of course, rest with the breath coming in and out. It's a perfectly wonderful floating, recurring feeling. Don't add tension to your mind by feeling that you need to cling to it. Breath awareness, breath awareness, hearing awareness, sitting awareness thought about lunch, breath awareness. Make it easy. One of the Tibetan instructions for meditation is to develop a mind that clings to nothing. Things arise and they just pass. And you rest and stay awake. So we'll sit.
as we come to the end of sitting together. There's always this time for mentioning into our communal space people that we are thinking about with special regard and special blessing. And I know that you all join me in uh, mentioning John Namkung and his uh, work in Greece and hoping that things go well for him for the rest of his time there and for his return. Who are you thinking about this morning? about my nephew Paul who just won the history bead for Northern California to go to Chicago for and it's particularly significant because he's had such a quirky school experience because his inner ear can't interpret instructions from teachers but he was able to get his knowledge through computer and I'm thinking about my granddaughter sending her prayers and blessings that she find her path and when she finds it, proceed on it joyously. I'm thinking of my mother-in-law, who's also my friend, and is 95 and in declining health. video I saw on their website yesterday looking in talks and she was just so human so naked so wide open so grateful and in such a down out space it really touched me deeply and she really needs our support she's not well I'm thinking of Deborah in Tamazo whose six year old daughter died a few weeks ago with a fine piece. 
I'm thinking of my mother who's 93 and fetches all the time, but she, um, and sometimes she gets disoriented and then she screeches, but um, she, she does enjoy some things even though she won't admit it. <laughs> my sons and their wives and children and just what it is to navigate young married life and family and, and themselves and wishing that they can do that with their big wide open hearts. <coughs> May all the people that we mentioned and all the people that we thought about and didn't mention and all the people that aren't remembered and cared for by anyone, may all beings, all people everywhere look around and rejoice in the possibility of caring for each other. May this be a world where suddenly our vision goes out and a web of caring spreads around this world. And may we, from our friendship and community, take away from this day and all our days here the sustenance and inspiration to continue our own part in making it that kind of a world. I said earlier that all the Dharma talks are the same. They're always, how are we going to keep our minds and spirits reasonably clear and buoyant in the face of life, not even just terrible events. There are always events, and some of them, like yesterday, are terrible. I wrote a blog yesterday that I posted on my Facebook page. Also on my website. You might want to know that I have a, a, a newly reconstituted website called, uh, 
not too hard to figure out that the website is sylviaborstein.com. Uh, and I, I write a couple of blogs a week that then transfer over the miracles of cyberspace onto my, onto my Facebook and uh, onto my Twitter feed, none of which I actually do. <laughs> I mean, I do write the blog. And my daughter does all of that. I think you get exempt if you're over 70 from doing that kind of stuff. It's just not in the cards for this lifetime, I think. So the blog that I wrote yesterday that it's called The World is Not Less Safe Today Than It Was Yesterday. The terrorist attacks in Brussels were indeed terrifying. Sights and sounds of people wounded and buildings shattered are horrifying. And since we see them collectively and repeatedly as TV networks run details as they unfold, and analyses of how and why they happened, they seem to fill the communal consciousness. People greet each other saying, did you hear about it? It feels to me as if it is certainly appropriate to feel saddened. Families waiting for a normal day to unfold have been bereaved of a loved one. Families rushing to the bedsides of wounded relatives are traumatized. People near the attacks who were not wounded are likely in shock. All of us around the world watching the coverage on TV are surely shaken, both by the pain of seeing other people in pain and perhaps also by the thought that could happen anywhere, could happen to me. It could, but it's not likely. We can certainly feel compassion, but we do not need to feel frightened. For the most part, people travel all over the world every day in monumental numbers and do it safely. And people survive accidents and illnesses. Anyway, our bodies are vulnerable even without doing an activity that might be considered dangerous. The only part of us that can be invulnerable is our capacity for benevolence. What seems to me What seems most important to me is to hold today's events with as much compassion as possible. I feel compassion for the people directly impacted by the attacks, but also for everyone, including me, who feels saddened. I feel sad for the mothers and fathers of suicide bombers everywhere who will not see their child again. I don't know how to finish the sentence, life is, or people are. Life happens all the time, and events have consequences, whether they're volitional or natural. Earthquakes and tsunamis often have catastrophic outcomes, leaving bereaved survivors. Shootings in schoolyards or post offices or movie theaters also leave bereaved survivors. Life is everything, and people are complicated and sometimes capable of planning and doing terrible things. Others, most of us, I believe, are moved to console and to care. I'm reading a book called uh, Tattoos on the Heart. Anybody read it? Someone recommended it to me, and I can't remember the name 
of the writer, the author right now. Doyle, Gregory Doyle, Boyle, Father Gregory Boyle. It's lovely. It's lovely. I haven't finished it all. Father Boyle is a uh, is a priest working uh, in the middle of um, gang territory and uh, talks about the people that he works with and loves uh, and how the work that he's done has changed and uh, helped so many people as it has changed and helped him. It's so clear. This is Father Boyle saying, Compassion is not the relationship between the healer and the wounded. It's a covenant between equals. It's a covenant between equals. Compassion is always at its most authentic about a shift from the cramped world of self-preoccupation into a more expansive place of fellowship and true kinship. You know, when I read that sentence, I actually saw it viscerally, kind of. It's, a, um, it's about a shift from the cramped world of self-preoccupation to the shared world, what did he say? A more expansive place of fellowship and true compassion. And it's, uh, he tells story after story, and it's so clear as you read it that as he's with these mostly young men who have been very uh, hurt and wounded in their own lives, traumatized in different ways, that there's no us in them, that uh, they love him as he loves them without any hesitation. And I feel uplifted when I read it. It's a, it's a, um, it's an ongoing story without him saying in this many words, you could do the same. The, the story is the message. You could do the same. This is the possibility of the human heart, that it liberates itself. It's not, it's not giving away something that it needs to, to uh, guard for itself when it opens its heart with love and with kindness. It's not giving anything away. It's actually allowing what we have to take up the whole space with everybody else's space of compassion and kindness and lifts up the whole world. And it isn't uh, I who am loving, it is love that is happening. And somehow, I will by the time we see each other the next time I've finished it. I lament that I haven't finished it by today. But um, I was really excited. Somebody told me about it. I don't remember who it was. None of you, right? Was it? Was, oh, it was Maria. I'm sorry, dear. I got the email. Uh, Maria Monroe sent me an email. Can I say the provenance of it? Okay. So uh, this is fine. So I'm, I have to always think, do I want this out on worldwide internet? Yeah, sure. Uh, Maria wrote me an email, and she said, our mutual friend and colleague, uh, Joseph Goldstein, who we both know, uh, loves to read, and he loves to read novels, and he reads a lot of mystery novels, thrillers. There's hardly a thriller 
that he hasn't read, which might seem a little odd. Here he is, known for, you know, but that's what he does. He loves thrillers, and he reads all the mystery authors. And Maria wrote to me and said, here's a, a suggestion from Joseph, who loves this, and it's out of his genre. So it's not out of his genre of Love Heals the World. He knows that genre. It's out of his normal thriller genre as, uh, as, a, as a recreational activity. Can you figure it out before it gets all figured out by itself? Because this doesn't have any plot where you get to a denouement and say, oh, that's how they solve it. It just unfolds, and it's another story, and it's another story, and it's another story. And each of the stories are, in a sense, the same. Somebody's struggling. Someone's in pain. He loves them just because he really does, and they get better, and they start loving, and everyone is better, and everyone is kinder. I always think of my friend Sally saying to me when I'd gotten back from teachings from the Dalai Lama, she said, did His Holiness say anything new? (laughs) I don't know. His Holiness didn't say anything new. There's nothing new to say. You know, there is one truth, that loving people makes things better and that we have the capacity to love each other. So here is some... um, I'll read you a little bit from John, John Namkung. So how many people knew that John... John, I'm pointing over where Maria is, but John usually sits somewhere over there where Maria is. And uh, John announced to this group uh, three or four weeks ago that he was about to go to Greece. And many of us gave gifts to him, gave contributions that he could take with him to uh, use on behalf of the refugees. None of it was for him. It was all on behalf of the refugees to run the laundromat, to buy the stuff to wash the clothes with. And uh, this is John's from John's blog. And if you uh, gave John a gift and you didn't get uh, somehow on this list, come and uh, get one of these from me because it will have the email for contacting him. I am now in the town of Idomeni on the border between Greece and Macedonia where I reported on my last post that the refugees remain in limbo under the most dire and harsh circumstances. That is a huge understatement. It is the most depressing and god-awful place I have ever seen. I walked around this morning with tears in my eyes, saying to myself, what did these people do to deserve this cruel fate? Around 12,000 of them traveled hundreds and thousands of miles over weeks and months after escaping death and destruction and have ended up in this place unable to move on because the border has been closed. The Greek interior minister said today, I do not hesitate to say that this is a modern-day Dachau, a result of the logic of closed borders. Whoever comes here takes several blows in the stomach. Today a refugee set himself on fire to protest the closing of the border. His condition is unknown. I saw the most horrible living conditions you can imagine. A woman was washing some clothes in a puddle of dirty water coming out of a drainage dish. 
While there is some running water and portable toilets, there is, of course, no heat, no electricity. The nights get bitterly cold. Last week when it rained, people got soaked and the fields turned into a muddy mess. If not for the volunteer groups that make meals, many of the refugees would have no other way to eat. I noticed many people carrying pieces of firewood in every possible container imaginable. Blankets, plastic bags, boxes, garbage containers, clothes, and even in a stroller. They had bought the firewood from some Greek men and had to carry it over a distance of perhaps 500 yards over ruts and potholes. I saw a young boy of uh, about 12 years old dragging his load of firewood that was wrapped in a piece of cloth. He was struggling mightily and stopped every 10 steps or so to rest and reposition the logs so they wouldn't fall out. I offered to help him, and between the two of us, we carried the load for about 200 yards when I noticed that he was having difficulty holding up his part. So I took the entire load and carried it the rest of the way. I knew that all of the hours spent in the gym would pay off someday. (laughs) He he said, thank you, in English, when we had reached his tent. I'll read you another one more down here. It was a very today was a very difficult and emotionally draining day for me. However, it ended in a positive note. I played with some children, throwing them up in the air and twirling them around. Of course, they shrieked and laughed like all children do everywhere and wouldn't let me stop. I had a hard time conveying to them in Arabic that I'm an old man and I can't keep up that activity. <laughs> like I did when I was younger. One of the volunteers was playing a recorder, so I sat next to her on a curb. A little boy and girl came and sat on my lap and put their arms around me while listening to the music. I hugged them tightly, knowing that all of us needed a big hug at that moment, especially me. In the midst of darkness, there's always a ray of light. The children are the light. On this blog, he included um, two pictures that were drawn by the children. One of them is pictures that children draw all over the world of people. And the other one is a SpongeBob. You want to pass it around? It'll make its way around. I think to myself, particularly the kind of courage it takes, it's hard to listen to that, isn't it, to have that description. I'm thinking of what courage John has to not only listen, but to go there and look at it and be walking around in the rain there and thinking, I wonder where he's sleeping and what is he eating and what is he doing for taking showers and do they put up volunteers and where do they put them or is he putting himself up or... How is that happening? He'll be back in April, so he'll tell us. I remember when he got up here and talked to us about it, he said he had been reading about it, and then he couldn't not go. You know, I thought to myself, I had a momentary thought, well, why don't we all go, or why don't I go? And seriously, you need a certain amount of stamina. You can't go if you're old. You can't go if you're physically vulnerable, but uh, why doesn't the world go? You know, why, is, why isn't that hap- stopping 
happening. Everybody knows it's there. How to um, how to keep having a mind that remains open and engaged and not embittered in a world where that happens. Uh, because to the degree that we become embittered, that's actually like a, a, a I was going to say it's a favorite word of mine, but it's not a favorite word, but it's a word that I use a lot because I, I, I feel it somehow in my body. Sometimes you say so-and-so is a very uh, bitter person. Maybe they don't say it anymore, at least in the community that I grew up in. When people talked about people, they'd say so-and-so. She's a very bitter woman. And uh, it had a certain meaning of self-involved and uh, ungenerous and mean-spirited. It's actually the opposite of generous and loving and uh, unconfused. I wonder if that wasn't... uh, Greed, hatred, and delusion. Because you think about greed, hatred, and delusion being the three poisons in Buddhism. And uh, greed is I need more from me. And hatred is I have to get rid of that. And the third is I don't get it, what's going on. If I felt in a more fooling around mood, I'd say bewitched, bothered, and bewildered. But... Those are the three ways that the that the mind really responds to being affected by something and not um, being able to be uh, equanimous about it. All these things happen. We're supposed to be affected by things. We are supposed to feel badly about about everything that's 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 painful in the world. I think that we do because we imagine. It touches us in some way. Some people have more mirror neurons than others, and they're more empathetic. Some people have more mirror neurons. Uh, some people... Huh? It's hard. It's very hard. A mirror neuron is the word for people who really do feel easily empathic. Like uh, EQ is the word that... Uh, oh, wait, wait. What's his name? Not John Kabat-Zinn. Um, Daniel, Daniel Goleman wrote uh, Emotional Intelligence. And it's like you have an IQ and you have an EQ. And some people with a very high IQ, it doesn't necessarily go along, apparently, that a high IQ is a high EQ. And it doesn't mean that you become mad if you're very uh, uh, academically talented, that you become embittered. I, they're different neurons, apparently, and some people have uh, some people on the, on different kinds of neurological scales don't feel as much. There was an article in yesterday's newspaper, maybe the day before, about some about uh, some uh, experiences with people with Asperger's disease. Did you read that article? It was an article in the New York Times. People with Asperger's disease who often do not have a good read on other people's emotional state. So it's not that they're not kind-hearted, but they don't get it so much that the other people are in pain. And some people with the extreme mirror neurons, they really do get it. Um, 
and something happened, and they were describing somebody, because it's often also true, it's not always true, but it's often true that people with extreme uh, particular uh, uh, mental talents, like people who are able to envision tremendous uh, formulas and ways to uh, or become remember every Sunday in uh, uh, the dates of every Sunday in uh, 1942 or uh, people with amazing kinds of um, play concertos when they're five years old that, uh, that sometimes they have those kinds of unusual neurons and once they hear a piece they can sit down and play it somehow uh, and they're often called prodigies, and it is a wonderful thing. And they're making the point that sometimes, but not always, it goes along with some difficulty in the scale of relating to people, but not always. And the article in the paper was about some actual research where I can't remember whether th this person ingested something, or, but they did something with this person as a research. It was that what it was, Michel? But the thing is that this person all of a sudden felt things, and it really was overwhelming to him. And his wife said he cried about everything. Everything was so tremendously moving. Yeah. There's also something called the highly sensitive person trait that was identified about 20 years ago by Elaine Aaron, but it's not well understood even by psychology. HSPs are just very wide open. Just very, very, very open too. So the the thing with this man with the suddenly felt so trem tremendously, it faded after a while. It lasted for a little bit, but then it faded. But he had an idea then of what it would be if you were that other kind of person. And the point of the article was it was really a part of inclusivity training that people come with all kinds of neuronal equipment, and not to make somebody with other kinds of equipment uh, a less, you know, huh? or wrong, or wrong. I'm noticing that in grade schools, uh, uh, what did they, when I was going to grade school, they had a name for, uh, they had a name, it's good I don't remember it, for people with learning difficulties, because it definitely was not a uh, neutral name. And now, now what school psychologists talk about is people who learn differently. There are camps for people who learn differently. There are classes for people who learn differently. And it's hmm? special needs, but and it's understood that they learn differently. So, like this person who uh, just won the history prize, who was it who won a history prize? My nephew. Yeah. Learning yeah, and he got. Uh, is there a history B? Is there? There's a history B, and they know all about geography and, and history, and out So, if you say what was the date of the Camden Purchase or something, they know about it. That's great. Uh, because somebody figured out, how, you know, how to learn what the differently is for the way they learn, and that's the way they learn. My eldest grandson, uh, who's doing very well in his adult life in the world, 
uh, learned by listening to books on tape. And he still listens to books on tape that, uh, and learns what he learns and retains it and <coughs> operates perfectly well in the world as an educated adult. But looking at it on the page and reading it didn't work for him very well going to school. And so to be able to know about that and say everybody is wired differently and to not separate us and them. So the, uh, the, oh, this was just on my top of my pile here. Come and see me later if you'd like to see this. This is a, yet another way to support a, a, a good cause. People, uh, one of my sons rides from San Francisco to Los Angeles every uh, June to support the AIDS ride. And people sign up and support him in the riding, and he sends them letters. And everybody, you know, maybe they do it because he's my son and they know me. This is one of my grandsons who is not riding to Los Angeles. He's walking all night on May 21st. He's walking all night uh, for suicide prevention research. And uh, he's worked for several years in the emergency room at Marin General, so he is actually quite sensitive about the high suicide rate. So he feels motivated to do that. People feel motivated to do different things, is I guess what I want to say. John felt motivated to go to Greece. And uh, to, to feel motivated to do something that has helps people, not you, who you don't personally know even, but you're part of the helping effort. That's such a, I think, a universal kind of um, trait. Maybe not in people who have different, the kind of neurons that don't mirror, but if we have empathy and we can reach out and relieve somebody of distress. I remember that we were each going to tell about how we had homework for today. Do you remember that? Okay, good. I remember that too. But I want to tell you uh, a, a, a scene that comes to my mind when I just said that we feel better when we help other people. Uh, some time back, I was teaching a retreat up in the big hall on top of the hill. So a room full of 100 people sitting there for a week or maybe two or four, I don't know. And uh, usually all these rooms, the room is very quiet for that whole time. And uh, I'm sitting up in front. And all of a sudden, as the sound of somebody crying, and people cry sometimes when they sit, they remember something and they cry. And usually they make a, like an attempt to like muffle it up a little bit so that they're not, people feel sensitive about this, uh, disturbing other people. So a person is crying and you're really trying to moderate it, so it, but I could hear it in front. So I open my eyes and I see that there are two women in, in the back, sitting not on Zafo, sitting up on chairs, two women. And I, I knew, I was familiar with both of those women because I had met both of them in uh, one-on-one sessions where they come and meet the teacher. So I knew who they both were, and I also knew that they didn't know each other. They just happened to be sitting there. So let's say here's the person who's crying and here's the other person sitting. And I open my eyes because the person crying is snuffling a little bit. And, this, and the person sitting next to her is sitting like this. And at one point, and we also tell people, don't talk to people, don't 
mix it up with other people. We talk about keeping custody of the eyes, don't intrude on people's space. So I see this woman sitting here, this woman here, and she's sitting here without opening her eyes. She reaches out her arm and puts it on this person's arm and just soothes it like this and then puts it back in her lap. And I remember just looking out and feeling, when I just told you that, didn't you feel... Because that's what you do. When you hear somebody next to you crying, you stick out your arm, and you put on, or you feel like sticking out your arm. That's, I think that's what, for mostly all human beings, I think that's what the impulse is, to relieve somebody else's suffering. We feel, I think that's why we made it as a species somehow. Some people do terrible things to other people, but mostly we nurture. So we did, anyway, if you want to uh, go on a website and uh, support, come and see me about that. By the way, it's often, uh, it, it's sometimes, not, not, not certainly always, but it's sometimes a kind of a, a story that repeats in families, and they don't know whether that is some kind of a gene, a depressive gene with a suicidal tendency, whether it's you inherit it or you learn it. Because there's a difference between being depressed and really being depressed to the point of really having an impulse to end your own life. It wouldn't matter if we discovered that it was a gene. If it's a gene, you have it. It matters that we know about it and, uh, and don't other it. So last week we were talking about um, the Eightfold Path, I remember. I said, uh, I, I read that uh, line from Martin Luther King where he said, the arc of justice, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Which, may, which you know, I choose to interpret as meaning human beings are evolving. And if we stay here long enough, we'll get up to that. You know, that uh, I'd still like to think that. Why not? Especially now that we have such worldwide universal communication that we can actually see the people crying in the square in, in Brussels this morning, putting flowers down. The Eiffel Tower was lit up last night in... Uh, they made the lights be red and black and yellow, which are the colors of the Belgian flag. So really a big awareness of what happened. And I, I like to think that people could say, well, we shouldn't make it such a big thing and it'll fire up people. I'm hopeful that what it does is it fires up the determination to make this a peaceful world, that a, a world that has a recognition Look what's happening on really big scales. We have to figure out another way to do that. 
Now the, the world is evolving, I hope, because you could look around and say it's getting worse. I don't know that it's getting worse. It's just more universally known, but maybe that's for the good. Maybe, maybe all that I want to say is that uh, the, the, the inner work that needs to happen for us all to mollify our own hearts so that we're not the same as animals that uh, have impulsive responses. I don't like that. Uh, I really think it's a terrible thing to incite to riot, to say if somebody annoys you, you should hurt them. That's actually what we tell children when they're two or three years old that we don't do. That you can use your words. That you can say what you think. That you don't... You don't just hit in any kind of a way. So I was thinking about the ways in which uh, uh, in all, in all of the uh, spiritual traditions that I know about, the the uh, central important cultivation is the cultivation of peace. I don't know a lot about Islam, but I know that the word means peace, and that it's really uh, uh, um, salam is very close to shalom, which is a Hebrew word for peace. Salam alaikum is peace be with you and also with you, which is what we say in church services. In Christian churches, we say, uh, grant us peace, your most, your most precious gift in the middle of a Jewish liturgy. And I, I don't think that's accidental. I think when we talk about cultivating what must be a, a, a divinity. I have the idea that uh, humans are made in the, in the um, not in the sight, uh, in, uh, in the image of God. I don't think it means God has arms and legs. I think it means, uh, at least for me and for the people that I know, it means if we think of divine qualities, that people have nascent divine qualities that uh, that we are act actually in, in, in Buddhism. They're called the divine abodes. And they're absolutely uh, impartial loving kindness and compassion that's unshakable and absolute uh, joy in other people's well-being or other people's <laughs> success. Good for you. And equanimity. And equanimity being not blah, but equanimity being able to say, well, look what happened in Brussels today. I feel so sad about that. And then people say, you know, you never know. The truth is you never know. You really never know. That's why it's not a more dangerous world today. You don't know where not to go. You know, should I not go to an airport today? But I, maybe I could go to a post office or a, or a schoolyard or a movie theater. 
I think when these kinds of things happen in those kinds of places, you really get a first-hand story. It's like the strawberry. You never know. We are hanging on a vine off a cliff uh, all the time of our whole life. Um, and we talk to each other and eat strawberries along the way, you know. And we try to eat as many strawberries as we can and hold on as tight as we can and choose a good vine to hang on to. But in a sense, there's a certain tension. I read that this morning. I guess I was maybe reading in Joanna Macy's book. There's a certain tension just in being alive, even when nothing is difficult going on. That's why I gave those instructions to sit in terms of just relax. Whatever comes up, you don't need to do it now. It's like your mind could say, not now, I'm busy meditating. I'm come back in a little while with whatever it is you need. That the mind, the, the, there are always messages to the mind, do this, do that, do this, do that. There's not very many times when we're really uh, able to relax. When, I, when I'm teaching on retreat, I say to people when they've arrived on a retreat, at a retreat for the first time, I say, uh, make yourself at home. Because at home, you get home, you take off your shoes, you put your feet up, you have a cup of tea. Then you're really, you're home and you're safe. But, of course, we're not, you know. I mean, anything could happen. You could, uh, the, the, we could have an earthquake here this minute in California. There's a wonderful book by... Uh, there's a wonderful poem by uh, Billy Collins where he says, you know, you're never safe. He says, every once in a while, it's called Picnic Lightning. So every once in a while, there is a picnic at which lightning strikes. And there are things, and every once in a while, safes fall off high office buildings. You know, every once in a while, you don't know. But if you are under the safe falling or you're having a picnic in the lightning, or you're in the Brussels terminal or the Paris metro in that station. It's what, you know, then it's what, well, it was his time or her time. No, it, they were just going wherever they were going. It was the time that the bomb went off. You know, I thought to myself, when I wrote that blog yesterday, I thought to myself, I don't know how many times I've arrived at a, uh, a past... Uh, um, an accident that happened on the highway, that the that the uh, emergency vehicles are still out there looking at, and I think to myself, "Wow, if I had come five minutes before down this piece of highway, I could be in that accident." But the point is, I didn't come five minutes before. The fact that we're all here in this room means that in our whole lifetime, we were five minutes or five seconds or five years away from innumerable accidents and innumerable terrorists, anything, because we're still here. And stuff is happening all the time. It's actually a miracle of good fortune that we made it. And Sometimes I look around and I think, all these people, you know, were part of a club that made it till this morning. <laughs> Praise God, you know, that, because really we are. And we don't say, phew, I made it through another day, but we did. And Billy Collins in his poem says, you never know when a, uh, a piece of a blood clot is going to let itself loose from the side of a blood vessel 
and go floating off into your brain and that's it. You, know, that you really don't know. And the answer to that and the response to all of that is not to become macabre about it, but to really say, this is the only moment that I know absolutely that I'm here and I can do something. What can I do? And becoming morose or embittered, that doesn't do any good. But putting something good into the public pot, who can I help? Who can I share with? I wanted to read to you about this, this particular part from Joanna Macy. I'm really aware that we didn't check on the homework. <laughs> but I really want to read the Joanna Macy, so we'll leave the homework. Who did the homework? <laughs> you. The homework was to think about that there's an eightfold path, which we outlined last week, uh, and they look like eight different ways to train your mind to compassion and peace. And I was stipulating that they are neither of them, none of them different from anybody else. It's like looking through a prism, and any place you look in, you see all of the other ones. And so I wanted for people to look at it and say, oh, I can see that wise concentration is integral to uh, wise speech because wise concentration will give me enough steadiness of mind so that if I suddenly feel frightened or annoyed and I am about to say something impromptu that wouldn't be good, but enough steadiness of my mind to say, think it over. That you can't do any of them unless you're doing all of them in essence. So everybody got an A on the homework. And the three people over here who actually did the homework, you got A+. Plus. I saw who you were. There you go. We'll have more homework. I wanted to talk about the fact that the, the air was different yesterday because this, it's not the worst terrible atrocity that ever happened, but it's an atrocity, and it happened in the full public view, and we all knew about it. And the, it was a different day. We all went about our days, but we didn't feel unaffected from it. And so often I think to myself, when I feel gloomy or despair, or, we used to say that, uh, uh, that uh, I think I was easier to say that uh, the mind is sinking down. You think about what is wonderful, the, wonder, the innovative stuff that's going on in the world, the fact that uh, people can cure amazing diseases. The fact that the sun rises in exactly the right place in the solstice and the fact that the moon is full at exactly the right day tonight when it's supposed to be. And that all those, taking it from this, this small thing is upsetting me and getting me down to this thing is amazing me, so I feel up. And those are important kinds of contrapuntal things that I think we do all the time in our lives and they're very worthwhile. I also want to say that the, in addition to the little things in our lives and sometimes really little silly things in our lives that get us down and we feel bad about sometimes the personal things in our lives that get us down like the loss of a hope or the loss of a love or the loss of a person. I think there are communal things that take the toll on human beings' minds, like uh, a, a communal awareness of what went on. I think we feel the pain of the world, in other words, and I don't think it's neurotic. I think it's real. And this is uh, Joanna Macy. 
I was glad to read this, by the way, because then I thought, just now as I'm about to read it to you, I think, oh, well, maybe I like it because I actually am a kind of a borderline melancholic. You know, I'm always on that side of things. But I think this is really not making up for that. I think this is true. From the news reports and life around us, we are bombarded with signals of distress, of job layoffs and homeless families, of nearby toxic wastes and distant famines, of ever more devastating hurricanes, floods, and droughts, and ever-widening military offensives. Those events stir fear, sorrow, and anger within us, although we may never express such feelings to others. These deep responses arise by virtue of our connectivity with all life. To be conscious in our world today is to be aware of vast suffering and unprecedented peril. Even the words fear, anger, sorrow are inadequate to convey the feelings we experience, for they connote emotions long familiar to our species. The feelings that assail us now cannot be equated with ancient dreads of mortality and, quotes, the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. Close quote. Their source lies less in concerns for the personal self than in apprehensions of collective suffering of what is happening to our own and other species, to the legacy of our ancestors, to coming generations, and the living body of the earth. What we are dealing here is akin to the original meaning of compassion, suffering with. It is the distress we feel on behalf of the larger whole of which we are a part, the pain of the world itself experienced in each of us. No one is exempt from that pain, any more than one could exist alone and self-sufficient in empty space. Feeling pain for the world is as natural to us as the food and air we draw upon to fashion who we are. It is inseparable from the currents of matter, energy, and information that flow through us and sustain us as interconnected open systems. We are not closed off from the world, but integral components of it, like cells in a larger body. When that body is traumatized, we sense the trauma too. When it falters and sickens, we feel its pain, whether we pay attention to it or not. That pain is the pain of consciousness in a threatened and suffering world. It is not only natural, it is an absolute necessary component in our collective healing. As in all organisms, pain has a purpose. It's a warning signal designed to trigger remedial action. The problem, therefore, lies not with our pain for the world, but our repression of it. And then she goes on to explore why do we repress it? And the various things. But I really recommend this book to you. She goes on to say that one of the spiritual traps that it's good to avoid, is thinking, especially if you're a spiritual seeker, that uh, thinking that personal and political, um, personal search and political action happen in a sequential fashion. Uh, I'll find peace within myself first and then I'll see what I can do. Supposing the world and self to be essentially separate, They imagine they can heal one without the other. But if one is the other, then you can't. 
The understanding on which this book is based, however, is that we are inseparable from the world and that the beauty and the terror of our society co-arise with us. The crisis facing us, crises facing us arise not from projections of our individual minds so much as our institutionalized ignorance, fear, and greed. I think this is, and she goes on to say the painful list goes on. It is a painful list, but there's something about talking about it that directly and naming it and somehow positioning each of us in the middle of it. It's not that the world is happening and here I am and the world is happening to me. The world is happening and I am a part of it. And then I remember that every single thing that I do, you know, uh, internally and externally, every time I return my mind to compassion instead of being angry, I did something. I'm one cell in that body. Every time I knock myself out to wait until I get to a recycle to get rid of this Coke bottle, I contribute to it. Every time I don't, knowingly, it's a, a way that I'm saying, you know, I've forgotten that I'm here. If my feeling alive really depends on my feeling I'm here, then more than ever I have to be really attentive to what I'm doing to... Uh, um, confuse myself. So, I, hey, how about one of the people? We have five minutes. One of the people on the Eightfold Path. Amara, were you one of the people that did You know, I remembered we had homework, but I couldn't remember what it was. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to do it this week. Elizabeth, what? <coughs> Who did? These three. Oh, okay. Oh, you're giving this to me? Well... We actually, Michelle and I spoke in the car about this. We were, but um, I mean, I have to have the uh, the list in front of me. But I mean, it is really, it is really true how they are all part of the same picture. And I, I and in some ways, I think it would be hard to have one without the other. I mean, that that they're part of the picture, but they also support each other. I think you cannot have one without the other. And I, if I had to say that I thought one of them, no, it's not true. One of them is not more important because they're all, I can't say my right leg is the least important part of my whole yeah. body because, you know, without it, I'd be severely, now you need all of it. I think what we need, maybe the most of all, is um, enough understanding. Maybe this is it. Enough, com- enough wisdom because here are all these things the uh, understanding that however deeply ingrained it is that um, that peace is possible that peace of mind is possible and that in a world in which human beings had peace of mind they wouldn't be wreaking havoc on each other because if people had peace of mind they would share and if they had peace of mind this is I think the part I think that given all not paying attention at this moment to the small numbers of people whose neurology or whose life circumstance lead them to not have a compassionate, not to be able to have a compassionate response. For the most part, human beings are strung to be compassionate. Both sides of wars love their children. I, you know, uh, 
people do the same thing. They want their children to grow up. They want to have enough to eat. To understand that everybody has that same desire and that the mind gets so confused by its impulsive feelings of uh, greed and hatred and delusion and that realizing that the opposite of those three poisons are really what cures the world, non-greed, non-hatred, and non-delusion, clarity. And if we just stayed with wise understanding and wise intention, those are the first two, this is what causes suffering, and this is the possibility of non-suffering, non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, which is a way to say non-greed is generosity, and non-hatred is love, and non-delusion is wisdom. If we had that, it would be a, it would be a sane world and a peaceful world. And then all those other parts of it, behaving with other people in ways that are just and peaceful and don't evoke, uh, don't exploit or uh, exploit or uh, what's the other word? Exploit or uh, hurt other people. And that we need to develop enough mindfulness, enough concentration, and continued resolve to find us if to return to the path to peace. If we find ourselves uh, accidentally turning off on one of those whys along the way, I think we should sort of make a secret logo that everybody will understand about. Here's a road, and it says "Road to Peace," and you're going on that road to peace. Well, it's called the peaceful road, and it's going to happiness, maybe. And you're walking along that road, and you have every possibility when you're really determined to get to happiness. But over here, that looks really interesting and nice, and it smells good, and it looks good. And I'll just make a run for it right over here. I'll come back to this path when I get here to say, you know, this might not be the right time to do that. Let's steady on, you know, enough to take care of yourself, but let's not get stuck here. Or this road over here, that's a road that's marked by, oh, I could now think about it. That person said that to me. That was really not nice. Matter of fact, I'm mad about that. Matter of fact, I'll write them an email this second and tell them what I think about it. And I'll blind copy it to 10 other people so they'll know I did this. And, uh, and, and then to catch yourself doing that and say, no, you know, matter of fact, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to rein in the mind and I'm going to say, let's go just ahead on this road to peace. Sylvia, do I have the Can I say something? I mean, I think that the cultivating these things on the path are the important things. And just to bring this around to politics, that if you have somebody in a leadership position who says to hate, you know, who gives permission to do these things, I think that that's the really dreadful thing. I think within our leaders, we have to inspire all these, you know, the wisdom, the love, the compassion. And, and, and I think that that's the thing that's really important, that they, they don't just happen, they cultivate it. And people that are cultivating the other things are not good people. Well, you know what I've been thinking about? Um, <laughs> there's a cartoon some years back that I remember seeing. <laughs> this is so off the track of, you know, we're talking about such wonderful, uh, lofty things. Um, it's a cartoon of somebody coming out of a restroom and a bell uh, and a light flashing on, flashing on, and a, a bell going off saying, did not wash hands, did not wash hands, did not wash hands. 
So you, you, so it's absurd, of course. But they think, well, that would be a great thing to have in every kind of a, a school restroom or a restaurant place like that. Or did not wash hands. I would imagine a similar light that goes on and flashes and bells ring if people say a frank untruth that I've been hearing uh, as this campaign has continued. I keep hearing that so-and-so X made a speech at, which was checked on Politico uh, afterwards for were the facts in that speech true. And there were X many non-truths which divided by the number of minutes in the speech means one non-truth every two minutes or something like that. So what if a person said something that is just completely a not-true fact, like a not-true fact, that if a bell went off, ding, 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 or what if it became politically correct for people who are having a, so to speak, debate to call each other on that so that when person finish, person A finishes saying whatever they say, person B says, I don't want to use any of my time to mix it up with person A here, but this was not true, this is not true, this is not true, and this is not true, and you can see it on my website tomorrow. Now I want to continue to say what it is that I have to say in a not civil, not uncivil way. But what if we started to call each other on that wasn't true? You know, that... Um, Anyway, it's kind of like as big a fantasy as a light will go off and didn't wash hands, didn't wash hands. Anyway. <laughs> How to do it. Anyway. I think I want, I want oh, it's already 11 o'clock, but I want to say this about why we keep coming around to the Eightfold Path. It always fits for Noble Truths in the Eightfold Path. In Stephen Batchelor's book, Confession of a Buddhist Atheist, in which uh, he previously wrote Buddhism Without Beliefs a long time ago, another very good uh, uh, book, and more recently something, I think it's called After Buddhism or something. The point is that Buddhism comes along with, um, this is Stephen Batchelor talking, a cosmology, uh, first of all, a cosmology of how the universe works, and uh, which is appropriate for 2,500 years ago, but not necessarily what astronomers would think is how the universe works now. And stories, some of them probably mythical, and maybe a good number of them uh, historical, about the person who was known as the Buddha. And in the middle of all that, there, there is the Eightfold Path, uh, the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. And he says, those are timeless. The, the stories may be mythical. The cosmology may not be appropriate. The views of the social structure may not be either applicable to what we live in now or useful or helpful. But the Four Noble Truths about the presence and absence of suffering the presence of suffering, the ubiquitous uh, presence of suffering in our lives, and the possibility of peace in this mind, in this body, in this very life, and these eightfold paths always remain true. And I think that it's really important to take them. It's, it's not just about being mindful. It's about being everything, mindful and ethical and steady and concentrated and uh, inspired 
to make those turns off of those paths of impulsivity. I don't know if it's backwards to say turning back from the path of impulsivity. It's probably better to say going forward on the path of peace. It's more. Anyway, I am not here next week. And after that, I think the next two weeks, there's no class. Is that not right? It's not right. There's no class because there are two weeks of uh, diversity training for the whole entire Spirit Rock staff, teachers, everybody happening in this room. So if we had the new building, but we don't. So we have a long break until we see each other again. So I wish you very well. Take very good care of yourself. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.